Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the essential shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And I'm joined, as always, by my partner in all things strategery, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Elliot, great to see you. Well, it's great to see you. I'm uh, very appropriately, given what we'll be discussing today, looking out at a uh, snowy uh, landscape. Uh and uh, thinking how good it is that we'll finally be doing some honest-to-God military history. Indeed. Last, uh, last week, we had uh, Yara Trofimov, the Wall Street Journal's correspondent in Ukraine. But uh, we're going to do some uh, deep dive into the military history of World War II, not irrelevant to the subject of Ukraine. And our, our special guest is David Stahl, senior lecturer at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. Uh, who is a student of the Eastern Front in World War II and has written uh, five volumes uh, specifically uh, addressing the German campaign in uh, in Soviet uh, Russia and Ukraine uh, during World War II in incredible depth and detail. It's a brilliant uh, work of of history, I I believe. He's also edited and contributed to a number of edited volumes. David, welcome to Shield of the Republic. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. So let me kick off uh, before uh, Elliot gets into his favorite subject, which is military history. But why why did you decide to take on this subject? I mean, at 75 years remove, with the number of studies that have been uh, written on the Second World War, it, it would seem that uh, everything uh, has been said, yet you have found all sorts of, I think, fascinating and interesting new things to say about it. What, what attracted you to this subject and how did you go about attacking it? Well, it might be that the answer is tied up with your introduction there. You're right. I was doing a First World War, sorry, a Second World War course as a first year undergrad. And a lot of the story that I got on the Anglo-American component was somewhat familiar to me as a teenager who'd been reading some of this. What I found utterly fascinating and completely unknown to me back then was this whole war in the East. And what I couldn't get over was scale. I couldn't understand how does it that I know about Tobruk and I know about El Alamein and I know about Monte Cassino and so on. But I've never heard of these other battles, and these are million-person battles. It seemed to me that there was a bit of an issue with how are we representing this war in the Anglo-American world uh, if we, even people who, you know, I thought at that age, I've done a bit of reading. I know a thing or two about World War II, keeping in mind I'm only 18. I didn't know very much at all. But I just couldn't understand this war in the East. And I started going to the library and reading. And it was just one of those things, the old expression, you know, the more you know, the more questions you have. And I started to have this idea that um, if we really want to understand what's going on, we, we have to look 
at the war in the East because scale is so huge. And I actually started thinking the same about the Pacific War. I started to dawn on me that there's this whole second Sino-Japanese war, which we won't be covering today. But again, that looms so large. The scale is so huge and so vast. And at the same time, I knew so very little about it, which just allowed me to revisit this idea if we do know so much about World War II, it's really rather targeted. Um, and I would say even today, even, you know, this is 30 years later, I'm in my late 40s, uh, I can still sit there and think if a PhD student said to me today, oh, David, I'm interested in doing this, but hasn't it all been done? I can think of major books that could be written in this area that have simply not been done. So it's uh, it's very much the, the the unknown war. For all that we know, there's still a lot that we don't. And maybe some of that will come out today. David, could I just ask a, a quick follow-up on that? I think one of the other things that's interesting is that you decided to write operational history. Mm. Um, there, there is a, a lot of military history that gets written today, but a lot of it is either grand strategic or it's about war and memory or war and society. And you've written a, a series of books. So, those, so the first one, which I gather was your dissertation on Barbarossa and sort of the initial invasion. Then there's one on the Battle of Kiev in 1941, uh, then on uh, Typhoon, the assault on uh, Moscow, and then uh, several other books, which we'll discuss. But, but you made the decision to really invest the effort in talking about operational history. Could you talk to us a little bit about why did you decide to plunge into that? Because it's not a popular topic, I think, in mainline history departments. It's extremely important and very interesting, um, but it's it's unusual. Maybe if you could talk why, why you got into it and what some of the the challenges, but also some of the rewards of writing operational history are? Yeah, good question. Look, I think if you're a, a PhD student going into this, you do need to have a strategic focus. You are always going to be graded on your contribution to historiography, right? And you hit on it right there, Elliot. There are these top-down narratives. That's what I started reading. I was aware of the general course of events. I was aware of the general idea of what the German army was doing, that's because everyone who had gone before me, it seemed, was using a lot of the same top-level sources. Certainly, uh, when I first started, there were still some people using, and a lot of the older histories from the 60s and 70s had used German generals' memoirs. Deeply problematic, but big overviews. Um, people had used published sources like Helder's Diary and, and the OKW Diaries. I won't go into any of those details. I know a lot of people are thinking, what, the, what are those? But these are the overarching, very accessible sources. And some people who had gone to the archive were just interested in what we call OKH. That's the high command of the army. It struck me that if you want to make a contribution and really find out what's going on, you have to go to these next levels down. You have to look at the panzer groups, you have to look at the corps, you have to look at the divisions, keeping in mind, as I said before, this is a vast war. So don't get the idea that this is somewhere, you know, down in the weeds. We are still talking, you know, a division in Germany still has 15,000 men in it at this time, and these are full strength divisions. That's the smallest unit I'm looking at. So if you concentrate on that level, the ability to contribute something original, even to someone who had read a lot, seemed much greater. And what I would also add is as I did the research, it started to become apparent to me that the narrative you had from the grand strategic um, was contradicted 
by what you are getting in this middle area. In other words, these are core and divisional commanders who cannot escape the reality of this war. The reality of this war is very different from what is in the command files of guys sitting way behind the front and understanding it on a different level. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. How is it different? It's different because they are and uh, inescapably, they are confronting the losses. They are confronting all the operational problems. There are a lot of operational problems. We can probably unpack those as we go on. Um, so logistical, uh, the the attrition, even on the German forces, people assume that in Operation Barbarossa, they're the ones driving forward. They're the ones um, enacting these large encirclements. So they are the ones inflicting all of the damage and destruction. And that is true. It's disproportionate what the Soviets are suffering, but we shouldn't think these are cheap victories. The Germans are suffering a great deal, both in what people understand, the the attrition of fighting, but they're actually suffering much more simply by moving in the East. The infrastructure is extremely poor. The roads are very sandy and dusty. It means that if you drive a 1930s vehicle, whether it be a tank, a truck, anything across this landscape, the dust that's being thrown up, the air filters are very uh, poor. Well, they're just built for central European conditions. This overwhelms the engines. It's sort of things you don't really think you're going to pick up if you read a book on Operation Barbarossa. I'll end up talking about these technical matters. But I started to realize that if you've got 600,000 vehicles, this is going to have a very real implication for you longer term. Uh, and that's exactly what happens. Within days, you start seeing large fallouts of vehicles. In just one Panzer division, they lose 75% of their tanks in the first 10 days. They're not broken down irreparably, but that's a real problem deep inside the Soviet Union to get all these things repaired. Um, so you know, I, I started to spend a lot of time looking at these kinds of issues, issues I'd never read about much before. And I guess the bottom line would be, how does that impact this campaign longer term? I think Eric hit on it when he was talking about the fact that this, you know, is something I've argued is the failure of Operation Barbarossa is quite catastrophic to German proposition, uh, the German proposition to win the war. Now, that's not hyperbolic. That's because in a war of this scale, if Germany doesn't knock out the Soviet Union reasonably quickly, a lot of other factors come in that we might even be picking up later on about attrition in war in Ukraine and where are the parallels in all of this. But that that is not something the Germans have a contingency for. Their operational forces are actually a very finite resource. We talk about 3 million men invading the Soviet Union, but actually out of that 150 divisions, only 30 of them are motorized or panzer divisions. That means if you're suffering large amounts of technical uh, losses for whatever reason in that elite core, that is going to transform your chances of ending this war because all of the rest of those divisions, the other 120, are literally marching infantry and horse-drawn wagons. Uh, these are not going to win you a war with rapid movement. They're not the shock and awe of the German army. That's a very finite resource, and they're losing it quickly. One of the things, David, that I found remarkable was your ability to, uh, as you were sort of suggesting, uh, to contrast uh, and to weave together the story of the high command, both the uh, armed forces high command, uh, where Hitler and his entourage are sitting, and then the the um, the army command, where 
uh, generals with a different conception, perhaps, than Hitler had of how this fight ought to be ought to be fought. So at the one level, you you have this uh, debate and discussion at the kind of grand strategic level, but you're wonderful at being able to weave together how it interacts with uh, the folks at the pointy end of the spear. And you, you draw on the war diaries of the, the units, but also letters home from commanders, uh, from, from soldiers. And what comes across, it, it, as you were just saying, is the vastness of, of the terrain that they're in and how terrible the roads are um, and the heat. Uh, because there are obviously the operations starting at the, at the height of uh, summer, the heat, the dust, uh, the uh, consequences of that, both for vehicles, but also for horses. I mean, I was really struck by the number of horses you described dying. And then, of course, the logistical implications of all that. Talk a little bit about, you know, uh, how that story emerged for you as you were doing your research. Yeah, look, I don't mind saying, while I did obviously pick this topic, I was shocked myself, partly because I was a product of the books I'd always read, and I didn't know if when I went into the archive, I'd be looking for a long time to discover what problems were there were there in the East. And I have to say, it didn't really matter what war diary I picked up, whether it be a divisional diary, corps, panzer group, or getting into those command files, or as you say, some of the private papers the problems were everywhere. Um, I didn't have to look hard at all to find it. And I was also shocked by how um, forthright a lot of these, uh, certainly the commanders could be. In some ways, I would even describe it not just as forthright when they're writing this, but almost in a bit of a panic. I remember one of the divisional commanders in early July, so keep in mind, this is barely two weeks into the campaign, wrote, and I can't remember if it was in a letter or in a, in a war diary or so, but he wrote, we have to be extremely careful that we get this message across of what's happening inside the division, because if we don't, we are in danger of, and this is the key key phrase, we will be destroyed by winning. In other words, what he's seeing is we are, by all those classical military indicators, who's driving forward, who's doing the encircling, who's how many Soviet, you know, reports we're sending in of POWs. People know that story of Barbarossa. Germany is very successful. There's no question. What what he's understanding, though, is he's watching his, his unit declining in front of him, destroyed by winning, because, yeah, we're driving forward, but we must keep that operational edge. A good analogy that I read somewhere, and I can't remember who to attribute this to, they talked about the German army as being a spear. And think about that motorized element, the one that I was talking about before, the 30 divisions, as the tip of that spear. And the shaft of the spear is all the rest. The backbone of the German army is artillery and infantry. They need all of that. But if that spear tip breaks off, your spear is nowhere near as effective. And I think these commanders know that. And you talked about tensions. And very quickly, what starts to happen as this campaign rolls forward is there's a lot of orders about where we're going to go next and what we're going to do and where you guys should go. But keep in mind as well, the Soviet Union is a funnel that expands out from Central Europe. So as you go forward, it's not just that you are having to deal with the depth of your advance, which brings in ideas of logistics and how good are those? Not very good in the German army, it turns out. But you're also pulling your forces apart. 
So the front is becoming longer as you go in. And if what I said before is correct, that there's a, a lot of attrition, you can see how week by week, in spite of all their success, the German commanders are confronting at the sharp end of war this idea that we haven't got much left if we keep doing this, if the losses continue and we keep expanding into this open space, and the fact that for all that the original Barbarossa plan hoped, that encirclements near the border would destroy the Red Army and then it would just become what they call sometimes a railroad advance, like in uh, 1917, 1918, as the German army broke the Russians and then they just started actually riding the, the Russian ra rail network into the interior. That's what they kind of hoped Barbarossa would become, and that never transpired as they encircled these Soviet armies. They thought, okay, well, that's kind of done. As they went for the exploitation phase, driving further in, they kept encountering major formations. The other thing I would just briefly mention to try and illustrate this for your audience is when I make that distinction between the motorized and panzer element and then this long shaft, the infantry divisions, that's a very profound operational problem in the early weeks of Barbarossa because there is a separation between these two forces. The panzer groups drive in and those marching infantry cannot keep up. They are in the rear. They're dealing with the, the shattered remnants of Soviet forces. They're having to enact the, the edges of these large encirclements. They are marching as fast as they can. It is brutal for the German infantry in this summer of 1941 because they are being expected to go long distances, fight, carry all their equipment, and it's obviously very hot. But the German panzer forces are always way out in front. That means as these operational reserves are arriving from the Soviets and they're in their second encirclement, the first big one in the center is at Minsk, but they start immediately with the second one thereafter. We're in July by this point. And it's as the Soviets come from the east to try and break into this second encirclement, it's the very finite forces of the of the second panzer group and the third panzer group, Guderian and a man named Hort, who are having to fend off all these Soviet attacks. The Soviets might be on the defensive, but it's a very um, uh, aggressive doctrine in the Red Army. So they are constantly attacking it. You don't really see it on the operational maps because it's the Germans advancing, but the Germans are having to defend themselves. And there's a lot of attrition. There's a lot of fighting across the front. This is not a, by any means, a sort of a, a lightning advance as you imagine it. And maybe with if people know about the Western campaigns and or Polish campaign and so on, where the armies, the, the opposing armies kind of disintegrate once they're encircled or they, they don't always fight terribly well. Some French units do fight actually very well, but others do do nothing and basically give up. This is not that typical of the Red Army. There are elements of the Red Army that do disintegrate, but there are others who are encircled and fight fanatically. Um, the losses in Barbarossa, even for the Germans, are extraordinary. I'll give you one quick statistic, and then we'll go to another question. Uh, the most expensive month on the Eastern Front for the Germans before they get to the encirclement of Stalingrad is July 1941. I can't remember off the top of my head exactly what that figure is, but we're talking tens of thousands of lost men. Um, and again, that, that is nothing. Some people in your audience might be inclined to say, oh, but don't you know how many Soviets were being killed and captured in that month? That is correct. But it's a different starting point. Germany is in a global war against the Anglo-Americans. And I know the Americans aren't involved, but I always think they kind of are. Because once Lend-Lease is coming in, the American industry is in. And that's a huge problem for Nazi Germany, as well as the whole British Empire. So Germany has to confront this, and it always has to win it very considerable, um, uh, you know, by a very considerable margin because they don't have the reserve in industry or in manpower.
You know, one of the things that that strikes me is um, there's this disjunction, which I think you really capture very, very well, between the wars that's being experienced at the divisional and sort of Panzer Group core level, and the picture that you get from the Halder diaries, Halder being the uh, basically the head of the army, uh, or the in general the kind of higher level picture. And I think one of the things that you, you do very, very effectively is to kind of raise some doubt, quite serious doubts about some of the most senior levels of the German command. And, you know, the a, 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 a late friend of mine, William Samari, who was a well-known military historian who you quote, and I don't know if you knew him, but he, he always used to talk about the uh, German general's memoir literature as being the, if the Fuhrer had only listened to me, school of historiography. But but that, in in fact, actually, they were at some level out of touch and it's in some ways incompetent and in some ways, actually, even inferior to Hitler on certain occasions in terms of their kind of operational and strategic uh, judgment. Could you speak to that? Sure. Yeah. Look, you know, in some ways, um, I think it's helpful sometimes to go back a little bit because uh, Wick was completely correct. That is very much how uh, I think um, a lot of that memoir literature reads. And if people asked me, so in fact, one of you guys was telling me just before we we began the recording that uh, you had heard Jürgen Foster uh, talking about this phenomenon back in the 80s and American colonels at that time had really pushed back on this idea. But I think we have to understand where does that come from? Uh, In defense of the colonels, and I'm certainly not agreeing with them, but in defense of why they believed that, keep in mind, after the Second World War, we do not have what people like I have today. We did not have access to all these German files. So the only thing we really had as a primary resource, which came out very quickly with these German generals' memoirs, and, you know, the historiography wasn't that critical back then. I mean, maybe because of the Cold War, maybe because history just didn't ask a lot of those difficult questions yet. And the German generals have to say they sold themselves very well. I mean, I have students today who sometimes come in and, you know, they're only young undergrads, but they they, oh, I've done my reading, sir. I've read Munstein. I've read Guderian. And I sometimes have to think, oh, God, I'm going to have to teach you out of that. And it's going to be you think you know, know a thing or two. But these guys were selling themselves and they're selling themselves in a post-war world where they've probably got a lot of blood on their hands. And they're now trying to get past that. Also, their operational decisions. So it wasn't until the 60s that we actually got those archives, and I think it's in the mid-60s. It doesn't mean that every historian after that is now going into the archives. I would still say today there's relatively few who really spend many, many months for their books in that archive. So in the 70s and 80s, the historiography, especially on operational questions, was very poor, and there was a lot given to these German generals as these operational experts, or don't you know Blitzkrieg and how successful they all were, they knew what they were talking about. It was Hitler that was the problem. It was the OKW, Hitler's immediate circle of commanders, Jodl and Keitel and all these guys who were the lackeys. And what a lot of very good work, many, uh, not mine, many people who went before me or who are writing today have revealed that as we've gone through different battles again, this picture of the German generals starts to disintegrate. I mean, one of the basic questions we might ask just to make that point is for all they are good at, and I think we have to understand that people always want black and white answers. There are aspects to the operational um, practice of war that the German generals can be extremely good at. I would concede this, but it 
it doesn't count in my book to tell me, oh, I'm, I'm really good at 75% of my job. If you can't understand how perhaps something as basic as logistics works, and that's true of Rommel, but it's true of a lot of these guys in the East. It's part of the culture of the Panzertruppe. It is all about forward, forward, forward. And if you understand how the culture works, the, the I won't go into the details, but the Eins are the, the, the operation commander, if you understand that the most senior man in that command, he decides on the objective. The supply, the chief supply officer is a, is kind of a secondary guy. It's also secondary, not just because he's a subordinate, but it's secondary because, well, you obviously didn't make it into command school. You are a lesser officer. That's how it goes. And all you have to do is make what I tell you happen. Now, in a modern operation, what would happen is the guys would sit together and plan together, and the operations officer is not secondary and just invited in afterwards to now make this happen. This is a very real problem if you're going to try and extend yourself thousands of kilometers into the east. If that guy's only been brought in after the fact, there's a big problem there. And it's a problem also for that operations officer, but they don't see it. They tend not to have that culture and you're deferring the problem. So while on one level, yes, German generals were very good at their craft. They understood, uh, you know, the castle Schlucht and this encirclement idea, and they're very good at practicing it. You can see how they might get away with that in Denmark and Poland in the Baltics, uh, sorry, in, in, the, in the low countries or in France, because the operational depth is not that great. But suddenly those same problems are going to fall apart in a vast operational space. And you could even ask, you know, you, you talked about Helder, how are they planning this campaign without seeing it? And part of the reason why I was so interested in doing Barbarossa is because that seemed very apparent to me. And I had no military training. These were just basic questions I was asking. If a lot of the books I read in the 1990s that came from the 70s and 80s talked about, oh, how successful the German army is, isn't that amazing? That was very much the historiography of the time. It always struck me as, but how are they going to solve all these logistical problems? And as I finally got into all those files and I'd done my German the answers were not there. In fact, they would allude to the problem and then say things like these pithy little comments in the files like, well, uh, you know, by that point we'll have won anyway because we don't have answers. But that struck me, and this is a little bit later in my intellectual development, as a form of what I've sort of started calling, and it's, it's been circulated a little bit now as an idea, that if we have national socialist thinking, I mean, what allows people to kill vast numbers of Jews in the East and not complain about it? And we've always understood that this is a Nazi army, right? But is it possible that a, a national socialist perspective, which, if you think about it, that abrogates the early modern enlightenment, doesn't it? I mean, they're not motivated by the traditional ideas of law or morality and so on. This is a revolutionary idea. Is it possible that a national socialist perspective also rewrites Clausewitz, these classic ideas of what is warfare based on? Because it seems that they are making all kinds of, to an irrational person, crazy conclusions. I don't think you would be able to substitute an American or a British or anyone else into that army and not have them asking a lot of questions and say, Yes, but that's, you just can't ignore some of these problems, not just morally, but operationally. In my two tours in the Pentagon, my military colleagues always reminded me that uh, amateurs talk about strategy and professionals you know, talk about logistics. And I think you have just sort of trod over that you know, ground uh, once again. I, David, you are terrific in the books at discussing two kinds of kind of rivalry and tension that are going on simultaneously uh, in this 
huge fight. One is between Hitler and and Halder and and others in the army command about what the objectives of the operation should be, which seems crazy that you would launch such a massive military uh, operation and you know still days into it be debating what are the objectives you know should it sh- should it be a, a a strike against moscow the capital to decapitate essentially the soviet regime or should it be an economic target whether it's the ukraine or um the the caucuses and oil etc um at the same time among the commanders you talked about guderian and hoth there are others there's a competition for for resources going on as well who gets to have you know what uh, mechanized forces who gets the priority for uh getting uh, refueled first etc could you talk about both those sets of rivalries and and the interaction between them because that's really sort of fascinating to me no sure yes i mean uh the, the first one perhaps just to set it up for the audience a little bit uh there is a, a grand strategic goal. I mean, there's no ambiguity about who runs the Third Reich. It's very much Hitler, and he is setting the terms of this war. Um, there are three army groups that invade. There is a large army group that's going to go into the Ukraine. That's the second largest army group south. There is the central army group that is by far the biggest. Uh, that's going to go through sort of modern-day Belarus and and on toward toward Moscow nominally, but Hitler, even at those planning stages, foresees it taking a big bite out of the center, the central part of the Soviet Union, and then diverting because it has two of the four panzer groups, which are the, the parts that are going to drive the German army forward, then diverting north toward um, Leningrad and south into the Ukraine. That's a key point. And then there's an army group north, which is the smallest of the three army groups that's driving up through the Baltic states. Now, Hitler is very clear that, and he says it many times, and he gets no pushback from the army command who are in charge of the planning and doing all the writing up, but they are being told by Hitler, army group center is going to divert once it gets past the first operational phase. They never push back. In that sense, the question for me was, and I'm quite critical of the army, if you want to have that strategic discussion, sure, but you have to have it. You can't just go into this thinking, well, we disagree with the Fuhrer, but we're not going to say anything about it. We'll wait till the campaign begins. And the reason they do that is because they believe, oh, it's all going to be a big border battle anyway, right? We're going to win at the border, and then everything will just fall into place, and we'll have that discussion with Hitler and convince him that we should actually go on to Moscow with the Central Army Group. The invasion begins. It is very successful. They are encircling a lot of forces, and they are driving forward, and they're doing all those things, but there is also attrition. And by the end of the second large encirclement in the center, first one at Minsk, second one at Smolensk, at that point, there's a an operational pause. Now, in the older historiography, it was always explained that this big strategic debate came up and everything was frozen while they tried to sort it out and it took them a month to do it. That's actually not the case. It's frozen because they are uh, a very long way into the Soviet Union. I'm not very good with miles, but we're talking five, 600 kilometers into the Soviet Union. So they're a long way in. And before they do anything, whether they go south or north or east toward Moscow, and they are having this debate, the real reason why they're having to wait is because, and we've already heard about this uh, with the whole logistical thing, part of the problem with sustaining a German army at this kind of depth 
are those supplies. Now, where do the supplies come from? Unambiguously, they must come on rail. But one of the things that the German army had to plan for, to be a little bit more specific, is, well, how do we adapt our rail network to the east because the gauge is wider in the east. They build bigger trains. It's the Soviet Union. They have longer distances, so they've got a bigger gauge. Now, German planners thought, oh, this is actually really simple. Don't complicate it. You just knock the pins up of where these rails sitting on the rail beds are, push them closer together, nail them back down, and off you go with your train. It's not complicated. So this railroad trooper that they come up with that are basically going to be doing these conversions aren't particularly well resourced. There's not a lot of them because, hey, don't you know it's going to be really simple? Besides, in the interim, we'll have all the Soviet network and we'll capture all these Soviet trains and we can just run them until we convert them to bring all the Central and Western European trains into the network. It's going to be really simple. What you can't really do is sustain an army of this size. Keep in mind, it's more than 3 million men at this kind of depth with trucks because trucks just aren't efficient. Trucks just take you from the railhead to wherever the armies are. And while it's 600,000 trucks or vehicles might sound like a lot in context of a war like this, it's not the case. The problem is a vast amount of this rail network is either destroyed by the Luftwaffe themselves or the Soviets are very good at a scorched earth campaign. They are destroying this network. And it just means that when we marry this operational problem with the, the question I'm being asked here about the, the, the strategic debate, they are caught. We can't really do anything because we're waiting for supplies before we launch that next phase. We need to get all of this equipment up. We need fuel. We need ammunition. They don't really need food because they are living off the land, which is to say they're going into impoverished villages and basically taking whatever they need, um, which is part of this, you know, one of these ideas of the war of annihilation that the Germans are perpetrating. That dispute, though, is running in the background. It's not the dispute that's delaying everything. It's very technical matters, military matters. But there is a very, very um, uh, uh, rancorous dispute going on. Basically, the army high command, that's Helder, that's a man named Braukic, who's nominally the head, but Helder's the real driving force. And then army group center, r run by a field marshal named Bock, and then these uh, various army commanders, even down to corps commanders, they are largely convinced we need to go to Moscow. Moscow is cut the head off of the of the beast, right? That's where we've got to go. Hitler has a different view. Um, and he is very much pushing we're going to go into the Ukraine for economic resources largely, but there's also a tremendous operational opportunity down in the Ukraine because basically Army Group South has only gotten as far as it's gotten, which is not as far as Army Group center. And the whole central part of the Ukraine is exposed. And if Army Group center was to drive down into that exposed area, you would encircle the single largest Soviet front, which is like a, an army group, has multiple armies, and that front would be destroyed. If you look on the Soviet side, they are having a similar strategic debate where Zhukov is the chief of the Soviet general staff, is basically saying to Stalin, we've got to pull out of the central Ukraine. And he loses his job because he's basically advocating to give up Kiev and central Ukraine. What are you doing? Whose side are you on? So Stalin fires him. Of course, then they stay there. And to make a long story short, Hitler wins the dispute. They are not going to Moscow. There was never really much doubt about it, but there is a long debate about this. Then Guderian's panzer group drives into the central Ukraine. That becomes what we call the Battle of Kiev, and it's a catastrophe for the Soviets. We're talking 650,000 POWs and probably about a million all-up uh, men written off the Soviet order of battle because a lot are killed as well, and a lot of just disappear. Um, 
uh, you know, they're, they're, they're never really captured or they're just, you know, now in the, in the populace. It's a disaster and it unlocks the Ukraine really for Germany. And then Army Group South continue their drive. And, uh, and, then, and then we have, you know, subsequent operations that do actually follow in the autumn toward Moscow. So there, there's these disputes going on. There's also this dispute you were talking about, um, uh, you know, th th at the command level. One of the ways that has only really recently come about in my mind, and I've been working on this for many years, my most recent book was a very deep dive into the individual uh, lives of panzer generals. And one of the things that I only really started to think about in the course of that book is think of the Eastern Front, especially from a German uh, army or panzer group commander. So not the top tier on the Eastern Front, but the next tier down. These are still very powerful men in command of hundreds of thousands of troops. Think of them as independent fieldums. You would think an army officer at that level would be working together with his colleagues. Hey, we've got finite resources. We're all unified by a single goal. But that's not what's happening in practice. If the panzer generals are deeply competitive, they're not interested in, they don't discuss the grand strategic goal. They discuss themselves. And they are very focused on their own celebrity and how much glory they're getting. They're constantly looking at the German propaganda. Am I in the, in the newsreels? Am I in the illustrated magazines? They all have propaganda companies that are at their level taking photos of them. So they're always trying to win their support. And there's an enormous amount, if you, I've got all their private letters, or at least the ones I've included in that book, they are bitter about their colleagues. Oh, this guy's always getting more and he always says he's, but I'm at the worst place in the Eastern Front. I have to do the most. They're extremely self-focused. In some ways, I guess, and I don't know enough about um, other armies as the one I've studied the most, I wonder in some ways if you only get to that position by being this kind of extreme alpha male, maybe especially in the Third Reich, right? But now that they're there, this is, there's, not, there's a lot more division than unity inside the German army. And I really am hopeful that more people can follow up. I looked at Panzer generals at this level. I would hope that maybe at some point, or maybe myself, if I can find the letters for infantry commanders, because there's obviously infantry armies, which is a large part of the Eastern Front, if there's a similar phenomenon, or, or is what I'm describing very much the culture of the Panzertruppe, which has kind of seen itself as an elite and as a particularly uh, aggressive form of war. In fact, some people who know this area very well will say, oh, isn't there disputes between Horton, especially Guderian, and some of these infantry commanders like Kluger? Yes, there is. That's what makes me ask these questions. And that's probably getting into too much detail for the audience. But, but that idea is there, that problem is there. And so there's an enormous amount of bitterness and fighting over who's getting the, 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 the very finite reserves that are coming up, it's only 300,000 in the German reserve and everyone wants them. Everyone wants the fuel. Why is that guy getting engines for his tanks and I'm not? There's uh, a lot of bitterness in this. And then as things start to go wrong, as people, the, the front is starting to stall, that bitterness increases. By the time we get to the winter when there's uh, Soviet offensives, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a real viper's nest. Reminds me a little bit of Prigozhin's com complaints about Gerasimov and Shoigu. And, and you see the we'll same things I do. I can't escape my past. <laughs> we'll get to that. You know, one one thing I was I was thinking. I think Eric and I have known a few generals who don't mind having photographers uh, and journalists around. Although, to be fair, there are also a lot who don't want to have anything to do with them. So it's a somewhat different culture. But since since you went down that path. Um, that that book, uh, Hitler's Panzer Generals, is fascinating. And I wonder if I could just take it in a, a slightly different direction, which is, I mean, I think one of your points, and it's a point that 
I, I do pick up from uh, some of the people who've written in the German official history, which maybe you could also discuss a little bit, because I, I just think it's a phenomenal piece of historical scholarship, um, that the generals are not the apolitical professionals that some of my students, when I taught at the Naval War College, wanted to believe. They wanted to believe that these are, you know, the Wehrmacht, it's not like the SS, you know, they they didn't know what's going on. But actually, you know, I think the, at least my impression, uh, the more I read about the German military during World War II is they certainly went along with the regime and many of them actually kind of believed in the ideology, embraced it, uh, were all in favor of it. And again, I think the German official history, uh, particularly that that part by Jürgen Furster on, on Barbarossa, really really does demonstrate that. And I wonder if you could reflect on that. I mean, these, therefore, you give a sort of a hint when you look at, uh, when you talk about their experiences right after World War One in the so-called Fry Corps, which you might want to discuss. But, you know, how did these guys who did, after all, grow up in a very professional military, uh, which was by and large pretty apolitical and which was, you know, had been part of an authoritarian, you know, sort of, quasi-monarchical regime, how did they become, you know, either outright Nazis or people who were sort of Nazi sympathizers in a way? Or am I exaggerating that, do you think? No, I think you're quite correct. And, and again, it, it reflects the, 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 the changes in the historiography because people from an earlier generation did not have access to that. There was a lot of, a lot of people gave the German army a big pass. And, and let's understand why. The German generals are unambiguous. There's a vast memoir literature and almost to a man, they are, no, 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 we weren't Nazis. And we didn't do all of that. Um, to pick up on two of the most famous for people in the audience, just to make the point of how, um, how, untrustworthy as those sources are. And I don't want to say that across the board. Some people completely reject them. In fact, I've more than once been told, David, why are you citing the memoir? Don't you know they're all full of bogus lies? And I'm like, don't go too far with that. It's not like everything they ever wrote is wrong. And someone like me, if you're getting into the files, can check and balance to find out what's correct and what's not. The other thing there, though, is, is to check and balance those, those claims. Now, something that Munstein says, something that Guderian says, those are probably the two best-selling memoirs, the two most known. They both categorically say that in Operation Barbarossa, when that army order came down, it's called the Commissar Order, we did not implement that. We did not pass it on because that would be a stain on the German army, and that's not who we are. That order comes from the army high command, right? So first of all, that's written by the army and passed on to the army. Now, a guy uh, about 15 years ago, a German historian, did a phenomenal amount of work. Keep in mind, I've never met anybody other than this particular guy, a guy named Felix Rumer, who has literally made the claim. Now, I read it all. I sat in the archive for two years to read all the files, saying that about Guadalcanal is absolutely possible, right? You can probably, I've never tried, but, and I don't know exactly how many files, maybe I should be careful, but there's a, only a finite number of forces there because it's a smaller campaign. You could probably sit there with a certain amount of time, maybe weeks, months, and read it all. Certainly that's the case with many campaigns. Barbarossa, when I say 150 divisions and 44 corps and 13 armies and three army groups, do not underestimate how many pieces of paper that is. It is a warehouse filled with with files. But Felix Romer went, went through and decided, I'm not 
going to accept any of these claims. I'm going to read everything to find out how ubiquitous is the implementation of the Commissar Order. Make a long story short, was it implemented in all three army groups? Yes. In all the 44 corps? Yes. In all of the, uh, sorry, in all the 13 armies, the 44 corps, evidence, evidence, evidence. When you get to 150 divisions, it is categorical that 80% implement it. There is suggestive evidence for another 10%. And for the last 10%, there is just no evidence. Doesn't mean they didn't do it. In other words, if we start looking at the formations that Munstein and Guderian uh, are in charge of, there are hundreds of cases. So they absolutely passed this on and they absolutely have records of doing it. This is a blatant lie and it's now very much proven. So we start to see how untrustworthy these uh, these memoirs are and how that has potentially perverted the story of who the German generals are. So the question is about, you know, how do we account for how national socialist are they? Um, we also have, or, you know, I've been looking a lot at Guderian's letters. Guderian is relieved, clearly relieved when Hitler comes to power. We have his letters from that time. He's been writing to his wife that Hitler is saving us from Bolshevism because keep in mind, there's a lot of communists in Germany at that time. And there's a lot of factors. People have done a lot of work on this about, you know, the German army is the poor cousin. It's only the, the hundred thousand. It's all limited and there's no funding for it in the 1920s. Once Hitler comes to power, funding is there and social status is coming in. They're now brought into these state parades and there's all these days in the calendar where the military come out. They're energized toward um, being what they felt they always should be, at the sort of pride of place of the in the society. And they see Hitler as restoring that. Not to mention Hitler's rhetoric talks about redressing the ills of Versailles, right? He's going to reunite German lands. And he has been doing that successfully through his political machinations. And they foresee themselves getting uh, more back through force of arms. And they are very much on board for it. We can see that up to and including when they finally get into these campaigns, when these orders come down, that's they're accepting them. I mean, if you ask the question, most basic, with all these terrible orders coming and, and much worse besides, in Barbarossa, of course, that's where we also see the Holocaust beginning. We ask the question of all these commanders, many of whom people have never heard of, and even people like me, some of them, these divisional commanders, we don't know much about them, but how many of them ever voice real dissent, much less resign in disgust at the stain on the German army for mass murdering women and children, all of 0%. That says a lot about what army this is and how much they believe in the cause. They write about it in their letters, Bolshevism is the great threat and all of this. Um, so, you know, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a very close association generally between the German general staff and the German rank and file generals and the Nazi regime. And there's a lot of works looking at the criminality that confirm that, but also just looking in the self-interest. Maybe one quick last question on that, or one quick point on that. Hitler is also bribing the generals to no small extent. So for example, if you reach Colonel General, you get an extra 2,000 Reichsmarks every month. If you make it to Field Marshal, you get 4,000. That is a phenomenal amount of money. That is like four times someone's wage, an average worker's wage, on top of your German wage, uh, your, your, your Field Marshal's wage. And that means that at that top tier, if you push back on Hitler or you don't toe the line, not only are you in danger of losing your status and your position, but you are getting major financial rewards. And it goes much beyond that. People like Kluger, people like 
Guderian get given estates, vast estates in the East. So there's all kinds of uh, motivations beyond just professional ones. These are very personal ones that you stand to benefit from. And these are not public. Nobody knows that these things are being paid. This is not something that is sort of known. It's just sort of privately paid money. But generals obviously know they're getting it. Um, but it's not something that uh, there's much oversight on. In fact, it was only in the 1990s that someone came out and said, hey, look, they're actually paying off all the German generals. Um, so there's a lot of motivations. Hitler was carrot and stick with these guys. He he could understand their caste and what that would motivate them, and he played to that. But it, 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 that, it wasn't just that. There was a lot of rewards. And you also stood to lose enormously if you didn't toe the line. Um, was there another part to your question, Elliot, or was that? Was that... Um, well, we've been roaming all over the place. I was wondering, actually, maybe if you could talk a little bit about some of the continue to talk a bit about the historiography. The and in particular, uh, I think I mentioned the German official history of the war, which people, you know, a lot of people are familiar with uh, the so-called U.S. Army Green Books. These wonderful official uh, histories, which were written by some of the the finest historians in the United States. Um, parenthetically, actually, one thing I, that just occurred to me while you were talking, I think one one of the things that may have misled us is you know the United States had this incredible program of having uh, German officers, particularly the generals, write all kinds of monographs Indeed, in, in the sort of seven to eight years immediately after the war. It's a huge corpus of literature. A lot of it, I think, formed the basis for the memoirs these people eventually wrote. But, it, but they also, I think, shaped uh, a lot of our understanding of what the war was and it was a distorted understanding. But in any case, the, the, the question I had, uh, sort of the secondary question I, would, I wanted to ask you about was the, the official histories. And then as long as I've got the floor before Eric takes us off somewhere else, um, if you could talk a little bit about what are the big questions that you think remain to be resolved, uh, as you suggested there are. So those two things, the German official history, and then what are some of the big issues that you think are left out there? Sure. Um, perhaps in in, uh, in in louding that uh, official history, I should probably add the disclaimer that my PhD supervisor, or as the Germans say, my Dr. Vater, I always love that idea, my, my doctoral father, but um, was Rolf Dieter Muller, who is one of the authors of particularly volume four. Volume four is the German attack on the Soviet Union. So, uh, and Jürgen Forster and, and, and some of these great men of German history. You know, one of the things that I, I would say about that that, that series, beyond just being remarkably authoritative, is it's way ahead of its time. Uh, I mean, the volume that I, you know, we've been speaking to today is is the is the, the fourth volume. I think that came out in 1983 in German. Um, the English version took much longer, but uh, a lot of these ideas that we've talked about, Jürgen Forster was really breaking through and talking a lot about how this German army isn't just a, you know, it's very close to the regime. He talks a lot about um, how they're uh, engaging with the German allies, which is a, you know, it's a huge part of Barbarossa. People sort of forget. I talked about 3 million German soldiers, but you can almost, if you take the Finns, you are very much into another million, right? Which is extraordinary because people say, hang on a second, how many German allies? But, you know, there's 450,000 Finnish forces fighting in the extreme north. They're not even part of Army Group North. They're their own front. You've got 320,000 Romanians, 60,000 Hungarians, 60,000 Italians, 40,000 Slovakians, and then volunteers from all over Europe, all over occupied Europe. There are volunteers and a whole division from Spain, which is nominally neutral. They're all on the eastern front fighting against Bolshevism. 
Um, and a lot of great work was done there. This is an amazing series. And as I say, as the volumes came out, I think it very often in every in each edition, and some of the areas I'm not as across, there's a whole thing on the bombing campaign and so on. It's not really my area, but there's a lot of really targeted work there. The other thing that I would say that is special about that series is from an Anglo-American perspective, probably a lot of people imagine, well, there was all these German military historians who've been doing all the works in German on this war. Really not at all. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's not the typical reasons that people might say in the Anglo-American reason, in the Anglo-American world. Keep in mind, if you ask the question, what kind of history was being done in Nazi Germany? Military history. And it was very you know, rah, 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 Germany's great and wonderful campaigns and glory, glory, glory. So you can well imagine that after the Nazi regime is gone, military history is somewhat taboo. It's seen for a long time to be kind of, oh God, that's Nazi history. And a lot of people, even if they're not thinking that way, are naturally worried in a devastated country that if you studied military history, is that not just learning the lessons so we can fight the next war better? I mean, what are we learning out of this? When I started at the Humboldt University, I did my doctorate in Germany, um, I got some of those questions. And that's in the early 2000s. People, other students, even, I don't mind saying one or two staff members are kind of like, what is this? Uh, you know, this is, is this, what are you doing? And my professor, uh, Rolf Dieter had said to me, it's actually a good thing that you come from Australia if you want to look at this war on this level, because people will not understand it. They don't mind people researching the Second World War, but the topics that you're supposed to engage with are much more war of annihilation or but operational history. It's just not there. I think things are changing in Germany. There is more appetite understanding that just because you do operational history doesn't make you someone problematic politically. You haven't got some agenda to, you know, redirect the conversation away from the criminality into other issues. I think there's more and more understanding of that. Um, and in fact, the, perhaps my final point on this when we're talking about historiography is my, 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 my piece to, I'm thinking about how I can say this very succinctly, my, my, my discussion with those colleagues who are doing the Holocaust or War of Annihilation is, do you think all of that exists in a vacuum? Um, I mean, I'm a, I would like to think I'm a better military historian because I don't just read military history. I read all those books. They're wonderful. They tell me a lot. They give me other insights into who these men are, how this army works. They do wonderful research. So I learn from that in order to inform a lot of my operational ideas. When I say things like na national socialist military thinking, I get a lot of those ideas because national socialism has been re researched. But please don't tell me as a Holocaust researcher you can't learn anything from military history. Of course you can. It's the Nazis who burn books. Do not do that. You can learn that stuff and not everyone's trying to justify anything. And, you know, it, it's it's a big, in my world, it's a big happy world where we all learn from each other. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I think there's just so much, a lot of understanding for that too, I have to say. I'm not suggesting that everyone out there is looking to, you know, lynch a military historian, but I have encountered people occasionally who have written reviews of my book saying, oh, once again, we have to get onto the tanks and drive through Russia, which is besides the point, why does he not talk about, and then they go into whatever they research, right? Which, you know, and everyone's got their gripes in academia. We're running... Um overtime, which I think testifies to the degree to which Elliot and I are completely entranced by your work and, and what you do. And we could go on for hours. I wanted to get onto two questions, uh, which, you know, which I hope we can wrap up with. You basically say 
that once it became clear that Barbarossa had failed and that the Germans are, are not going to be able to knock the Russians out quickly, that this moves from a war of, uh, of movement um, and maneuver to a war of attrition in which the two sides are locked in a contest of resources and production, which the Germans were bound to lose, both because of the internal dysfunctions of the uh, of the uh, Nazi economy and the um, and the multitude of problems you outline that the that the military campaign had actually inflicted on the on the economy and vice versa. Would love for you to talk a little bit about that as a way of transitioning into. Uh, something I adverted to earlier with my uh, comment about Prigozhin. As I read your books, uh, I was reading them in the context of the ongoing war in Ukraine. And, you know, I, I just am, I'm hearing as I read your books, these echoes of contemporary discussions. Although, you know, some of the discussion is clearly inverted because Putin is arguing that the Ukrainians are Nazis. When in fact, as I read your books and looking at the military problems he is creating with his interference uh, in the campaign with the generals, the breadth of the of the front, the armor outrunning the infantry in the early days, the logistical problems, so much of this seemed very familiar from reading your book, uh, your books. And I was wondering if you could comment on whether that's just me or whether you have felt the same kinds of sense of of deja vu all over again as yogi berra would say no i i i i often you know when this war started in ukraine i often used to think well of course i'm seeing all the parallels i can't escape my my everyday reading but it's kind of a it's very interesting to hear you say that and 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 some have said that to me that they've they've seen these parallels based on a knowledge of the past and in, in some ways i'm not trying to give a plug for history or for history or for studying history but for all those that are out there who, if they were very honest with me, might say, oh, you know, history is all very well and good to study, but let's be honest, it's it's not, it's just nice to know. I don't know how applicable it is. Um, this war has underlined that for me on a personal level in a lot of ways, even to the point of second-guessing myself. I've always said to people, I work in a military academy, and I've always said, well, I'm a historian, first and foremost. I don't claim to know much about modern operations. I certainly have never served. But I, like everyone else, watched this war unfold in real time. And one of the things I could not escape at the time, which really illustrates this point, was, and I don't know what media people are, are consuming, but the media I was seeing constantly talked about this massive Russian deployment on the Ukrainian borders that was 150 to 200,000 men. Now, my context as a non-military professional is only my history. And all I could think was Army Group South had a million guys in it. And Army Group South gets all those allies I was talking about, all the Romanians, all the Hungarians, all the Italians, they all go to Army Group South. Now, Army Group South, to conquer the Ukraine in the Second World War, takes from the 22nd of June 1941 till about the middle of November to get through the Ukraine. And that's in context of another much larger war that the Russians are having to fend off further north with many more German soldiers. So when I was hearing about, oh, the you know, it was always styled as well, sometimes by the journalists, sometimes by their guests as this huge Russian buildup. And I just kept thinking, yes, but geography hasn't changed at all. In fact, what has changed is those Ukrainian cities are much bigger today. They're much more built out. This is not, I don't know how the Russians are going to do this in such a short time. Surely they're planning a rapid war. They're not planning a 
months or years long war, I just don't know how these numbers add up. Especially since one of the things military professionals will always tell you is, yeah, if you talk about 200,000 guys, that's not 200,000 fighters. A modern army has a big tail. So there's a finite number of guys who actually do the fighting. And when this all unfolded and it became a bit of a fiasco, not that I'm trying to claim that I've got any pre-science because I really don't. I'm not a military guy. But it became very apparent to me that those doubts I had had about the numbers, I, th- I sometimes wondered maybe the numbers being reported are just wrong. I mean, maybe we don't know how many they've got. But no, it turns out that was probably correct. It was just a massive underestimation. And coming back to Eric's point there, yes, that's a parallel. You could say that Germany massively underestimates the, the task at hand, and yet they prepared much more for it. So it is a remarkable thing to watch this war in Ukraine, and not just on that level, on many levels. I think the the one that strikes me most, again, if we're trying to do a World War II versus today parallel, is there are two wars going on in both instances. There is a conventional war, as we understand it, with military formations opposing each other. But in both wars, there is a war of annihilation. When we have gotten access to what has happened to, and you know, when they booted them out of the Kiev sector, and Bucha came about. My God, just one small town and what had happened there and, and just how ubiquitous in a very short period of time, clearly, not just at the, the soldiers doing running amok, but clearly there was understanding, even perhaps, we don't know enough yet, support even for this kind of behavior. I mean, how are these people just machine gunned in the streets and no one's even picking them up? Clearly there's understanding by the officers and clearly there's no problem with it. Not to mention mass graves. Now, that's also Barbarossa. There's a lot of mass murder going on here. The parallels and the irony that then the Russians turn around and start talking about the Ukrainians as Nazis. But then if you look at Hitler, he started talking about, well, the, the, the Soviets with their, you know, all the killing that they do and what they would do if they ever came into cultured Europe. And the, the parallels are remarkable. What, what I can't get over as well is that this isn't just some state that's doing this. This is Russia, which makes a f- a fetish of World War II and talks about it and has vast histories. It's almost as though they've completely missed the point. Um, so uh, I don't mind saying I uh, uh, I have been quite shocked by what has taken place. I think a lot of people use that word, perhaps even overuse that word. But for someone with a knowledge of this past to see what's happening and in Europe and in our age and you know, the whole nuclear component of if we are talking about a lot of parallels and such extreme behavior on behalf of the Nazis, I just hope that somewhere along the line, these parallels don't continue because I wonder how far they go with it. Um, not that I want to get all alarmist or anything, but it it, it does sometimes uh, give me a cold shudder. Um, maybe we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Elliot, I'm going to let you take us home. <laughs> okay. What's the next book? <laughs> That's um, always always the unfair question that one academic asks of another after the, you know they've just published a wonderful piece of things. That, that's great. Okay, what's the next one? Well, I have been the most predictable historian because I did my PhD, as you said, and I'm not trying to plug my books here, but I just did it. And I came away from it thinking, gosh, there's so much in this and I'm finding so much in these files. I'll continue on. So I wrote this Kiev book Then I carried on with just, you know, the same thing, you know, the more, you know, the more questions you have. And I sort of ended up with this five volume, one follows on from the other. And it was a bit of a 
a, a moment whenever anyone asks that question, they'd say, oh, hang on a second. Let me guess. What month did you end on? And I'd say, oh, January 1942. Let me guess. The next book just follows on. Well, I've bucked the trend because the one that came out this, oh, sorry, 2023 was uh, a biographical book on the Hitler's generals, which, but it, that didn't get me out of it because it was still a lot of 1941 and so on. I'd say a lot of new stuff in that book because it was German generals letters. But now I am completely bucking the trend and I am actually writing a book on the summer of 1944. And this is when there is a great collapse on the Eastern Front. Army Group Center is completely destroyed by a major Soviet uh, uh, attack in the in the summer of 44. And we have a lot of books on that, but they're all from the Soviet perspective because that's where the files are. And without uh, going into it, I have a lot of files that uh, let's just say people didn't really know existed because, you know, that's what historians dig out. Um, um, that give you that story from the German perspective from the inside. And um, I'm very excited by the book and using all my spare time to work on it. Fascinating. I, you know, I, I, my, my guess was going to be Kursk, but although my understanding is people also think Kursk may have been overrated as a, uh, uh, in terms of really having dealt a, a death blow to the, to the German army, that it really is the destruction of army group center, but th- that could I, take I, us back, back into the weeds. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a reasonably young man, so I would say nothing's out. Of, I mean, I'm also very fascinated in the way people say, I need to do stuff on the Western Front and so on. I am quite fascinated with military history generally, even beyond the Second World War. But but yeah, one book at a time. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to it. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you. Our guest has been David Stahl, a senior lecturer at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. And he is the author of a, a terrific series of books that we've just been discussing on Uh, on the Second World War and the German invasion of the Soviet Union and its consequences. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all.